Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Dobry večer and welcome to the Bohemian podcast with Pete Coleman and Travis Dow. Good evening from Prague. I'm Pete Coleman. And I'm Travis Dow. Tonight we talk about one of the more influential aspects of Bohemian history, and that has to deal with the Hussites. And to, to know about the Hussites before we talk about the Hussite Wars and all the ramifications that come with uh, the, the turmoil that that, that that caused in this central part of Europe and through the rest of Europe, we need to talk about the man himself, Jan Hus. Jan Hus, born in 1369 uh, and lived till 1415, is considered to be the first church reformer. And he lived before Martin Luther and lived before Cal John Calvin. Uh, so if, if we talk about the reformist movements, this is the guy, Jan Hus, is where it all starts, basically. Yeah. Right? All, all, all later reformers look back on him as a, you know, inspiration and, you know. Uh, he, was, he was burned at the stake because he was against ecclesiology and the Eucharist. Let's say against. Let's say he wanted to reform in a lot of ways, didn't he? That's why he was yeah. a reformer. He had different thoughts on had it. Different thoughts right. on it all, all together. At the time against the Catholic Church, that was something that you just did not do. So basically he believed that you should be a, you could be a Christian without being Catholic. Catholic, of course, being from the Greek uh, word of um, universal. Um, and the Eucharist is basically communion. That's how we kind of looked at it. Catholics, of course, had a different viewpoint back then. Everyone seemed to have an issue with other denominations' view of, of communion. And for example, one of the reasons that the Amish split from the Mennonites, if we want to get really in-depth into this, but I don't want to get too much into the weeds with what's going on with the Reformation. Everyone's kind of got their different viewpoints of history. Some yeah. things are historical fact. Other things are kind of uh, you know speculation about what people wanted to do and why they wanted to do them. Um, but we do know that the splintering of the church had many reasons and of the Catholic Church, and uh, it, it, it caught on very quickly. His followers founded uh, the first independent de denomination of, uh, from Catholicism, and it was a huge influence on Martin Luther and others. Some five years after his death, his followers went to war against the Catholics. If it sounds familiar, it's foreshadowing Martin Luther. All right? Yeah. Remember the 90, uh, yep. 95 Theses? Yeah. I 95, yeah. nailed to the wall. Uh, and and uh, by Martin Luther, about 90% of Bohemia were Protestants already by the time of Martin Luther. Yep. So the, the, the die has already been cast at this point for the Bohemians. Uh, many of them had, had chosen to break away from the Catholic Church and follow more of a, of a Jan Hus Protestant uh, viewpoint. Mm -hmm. All right, so yep. before we get into this too much, let, let's look at Jan Hus himself. We, uh, and, and before we talk about the Hussites and the Czech Reformation and all the impact that it caused throughout Europe um, to one of the bloodiest moments in European history. Who was the man Jan Hus, Travis? All right, so so he was born in Husinets. Uh, he came to Prague and he received a Bachelor of Arts 
and then his master's at Charles University. And then he became a priest and was the rector of the university. Okay, and he was the preacher at Bethlehem Chapel, which is right up near Narodni Trita there. Now, is Bethlehem Chapel, part of it, it's been reconstructed several times, I believe. Yeah, right. but like uh, the basement still, is, uh, you know, the underground. And there's, there's still actual um, uh, services that are performed there at Bethlehem Church Chapel to this I, day. I don't know. Yeah. I, I, someone had told me that. I have not yet been over only there. Only time I ever go there, I go there every year almost, and it's because on Christmas they have uh, this huge exhibit with all these uh, nativity scenes that wow. people all around make themselves. It's, yeah, it's kind of cool. So he was influenced by John Wycliffe. Uh, you might have heard of the Lollards. Okay, so those, those are what they called his followers. And he, he was a big fan. He even translated one of his works into Czech and then distributed it himself. And, okay, there's, there's, a, there, there's some politics that come into play here. But the bishop here in, K, uh, the bishop here in Prague and the king of Bohemia were both lenient with Hus and uh, with kind of his anti-corruption message he was preaching. However, Pope Innocent VII told them to tell him to knock it off. Okay, so higher up the chain of command, they're like, dude, you can't preach anti-corruption. You know, you, you can't do that. You, you know, you're the bishop, you're the king. Pay attention. Makes sense. Um, okay. So he, he delegated. Uh, <laughs> so who's read stuff from Wycliffe to his congregation? So, I mean, he did this in church, like at the pulpit, you know, everything. And the word kind of spread that uh, the word basically got back to the Pope, to Pope Innocent, that this was still happening. So that, that he didn't knock it off, even though after he told it, you know, he told the king to tell him. He was a, he was a rock star. Pe people were flocking from oh, all yeah. around. The message he was saying was exactly. something that people wanted to hear. They wanted uh, to hear absolutely. it, and it was standing room only. Uh, so so you can definitely, you can, you can feel the, the waves of, of, of problematic waves going back to Rome saying, oh, wait a minute. Yeah. What, do, what do we have here is a rabble well, rouser. The bishop, so, I mean, after this, the bishop went to, went to him again, and he was like, you know, stop stop talking smack about the clergy because, you know, like, that's you and me. Um, <laughs> so, you know, so anyways, uh, the second time around, Hus renounced his former preachings and admitted to making mistakes, okay? So he kind of, he took a step back. Hus's teachings probably would have just stayed put, except that King Wenceslav II did something called the Kutnahora Decree, and we talk about this in the Kutnahora episode. Um, medieval colleges, universities had houses, and it's kind of akin to the British collegiate system or the American like fraternity houses, but it's also very different than both of those. But just to give you an idea that they had houses, and those houses could be called nations, and they could vote, and it, you know, anyways, it, what he did was he gave the Bohemian nation three votes instead of one, in, as far as what, you know, concerns the university. So the Bavarian, Saxon, and Polish nations only got one vote. vote. So the that Bohemian was nation... change the dynamic of the school. Yeah, so the Bohemian right. nation could basically veto everybody else by themselves. So as a consequence, somewhere between 5,000 and 20,000 foreign doctors, masters, and students left Prague in 1409. So this exodus, now keep in mind these are mostly Protestants at this point. They're already under the Hus spell, right? So this exodus resulted in the founding of the University of Leipzig and other universities. The Charles University also lost its international importance and kind of you know became really a strict 
strictly Czech school. But at the same time, these emigrants spread the news of these Bohemian heresies everywhere they went, right? So that's so, how the message got out so of it really it really yeah. split. So at, I mean, so at this point, we kind of get kind of a, okay, another historic thing that comes into play here, a Western schism. So this was the type, uh, the time of popes and anti-popes. And at this point in history, there were three popes. Again, the details aren't so important, but it's political. And Hus, the king and the bishop, backed Alexander V, which was seen as a heretical pope in, depending on who you asked, like, you know, sure. depending on where you were in Europe. To make things worse, Alexander demanded an end to all of Wycliffean teachings. Hus and his followers refused, and the king and bishop backed Hus. Mm -hmm. So uh, we, we're already seeing divisions and people taking sides, and some of these sides are against probably Holy, the Holy Seat in Rome, uh, and siding more with the anti-pope and, and other teachings. Alexander excommunicated Hus and his followers. All right, what does that mean, Travis, to be excommunicated? That means that you can't do what anymore? You can't take the Eucharist, right? and you can't be buried in holy ground. Yeah. And, and to a medieval person, this was everything. That basically means you're banning them from heaven. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, you know, as, as, as life can be tough on earth, so if you can imagine the middle times, middle ages times, uh, uh, that's what your one hope, <laughs> that if I can just get through this, this life on earth, I got it made, man. But, you know, so to have your, your soul not to be allowed to go into heaven at this point is, you know, to be excommunicated was a really big deal. Yep. It wasn't shrugged off. Uh, all churches in Prague were put under a ban, and an interdict was put against Prague, but it had no result altogether. So they didn't care too much, I guess. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, think, I think at a certain point, um, the credibility of the Holy Roman Church was really put to test. I mean, you have the schism you talked about, Travis. You have the po and you have three popes vying for control. I think people saw the church as weak as it probably ever had been, other than the yeah. first few centuries that it was in its existence. And they said, you know what? They're not all encompassing as we thought. This is our time to stand up and say, hey, we want something better. Yeah, it, it could be. I mean, I also I also looked up what an interdict means, and it's one reason why they might have not cared so much is so the interdict interdict is when the pope bans certain rights in the church but without banning or excommunicating the members so he excommunicated the followers but these bans on the churches um, so you couldn't do certain things maybe take communion i don't know what those rights would have been but the members weren't excommunicated so maybe it just maybe it wasn't as strict as it seems i i, I don't know I, I i had to look that up i don't you know well we talk about the, the the problems that the catholic church had at the moment one of the biggest issues was indulgences and if you don't know what an indulgence is it, to, to, to really put it in a nutshell. That was Luther's big thing. That instance, was Lu yeah. Martin Luther's big thing. Uh, you know, the church would sell forgiveness in, in a way that uh, if you could afford it, you can give lands, you can get money, you can give money, and what you would get would be um, a, a waiver of your sins. It is time off of purgatory. Right. Now, purgatory... I didn't look, look that up exactly. Like, yeah. what, what the heck is exactly... Yeah. Well, you know... But, and I know that you can also go on pilgrimages. That right. could also be an indulgence. So when they stopped the money... For indulgences, this pilgrimage is still count as an, like that's what you get from going on an indulgence uh, on a pilgrimage. And those were money makers too for the towns that yeah. had the pilgrimage oh, sure. sites. Yeah. yeah, but it's not as direct. Like, hey, I give you five bucks, you give me a day off purgatory. Well, I I would say that in some churches, uh, in some Catholic churches, they still talk about the idea that yeah, you can't be entered into p the purity of heaven right away from this the sinning of earth. 
even a after forgiveness and death, there has to be a cleansing time. Um, and, you know, so, so that it, it's still, still around. The thought's still around. Even though it's not in the Bible? It, right. It's, it's, something, it's something that is, is part of the, the church itself. So when the bishop died in 1411, the folks in Prague decided to take a bigger issue with these indulgences. Uh, this was just bad timing. The pope, now another pope who would later be declared the anti-pope, declared a crusade on Naples in, in Italy, for which they gathered indulgences, all right, which became a sign of corruption of the church. Yeah. All right, so it's, uh, you know, it is it is bad timing, and the folks in Prague uh, didn't quite time it just right. So Hughes, Hughes, pre uh, Hughes uh, preached against this, and some of his followers uh, burnt papal bulls. What does that mean? It's like a papal edict. I mean, it's like a papal order. So instead of burning something in effigy, is, is it burning something in effigy, basically, is what we're talking about? Yeah, sort of. Like the, yeah, because the Pope makes a commandment, and then you burn that. You're like, screw this. I don't, you know. That's, that's, pretty, that's how that's I understand That's a pretty tall, tall issue yeah. to, to do that, because I think that brings a lot of, a lot of focus. And uh, Hughes preached that no Pope or Bishop had the right to raise a sword against his enemies and should pray for them instead. Now, that wow. I found interesting. Yeah. Uh, because Hus's followers didn't hear that part. Like, no, he's like, no matter what happens, you do not take arms against your enemies. You pray for them instead. Subsequently, this, this was really not That hurt. was kind of it. And Luther had right. similar thoughts. And, uh, I mean, Luther cried when, you know, his followers came into churches and would ransack everything and well, steal it, everything. Well, here's the thing with Martin Luther, and I think Jan Hus is, is similar in this sense, is that at heart, he was Catholic. It, it wasn't oh, yeah. about, I want to burn the Catholic Church to the ground and start, you know, and do something else. Not we want to reform yeah. this church. We right. don't want to splinter off from the church. Their effect, though, was a splintering, mm -hmm. right, of, of the, yeah. of, of the, of the, the uh, Catholic family. So uh, that brings forth all the Protestant religions that we, we see today. Burning some of these pap papal bulls and, uh, you know, this preaching that no pope has the right and that kind of thing, the church took action and promptly beheaded three lower class citizens in response. That'll do it. Yep. And uh, so later, these three were considered the first Hussite martyrs. And Hus, at this point, also had the backing of the university faculty. And that kind of, so the word kind of spread through the university and everything. Okay, let's escalate things one more notch here. And when the king tries to smooth things over, the only result had that, that Hus's opponents left Prague. Okay, so the king tries to fix things, and Hus's opponents just, you know, they're like, you know what, enough of this town, and they left. So it, uh, basically, first of all, Prague becomes almost overwhelmingly Protestant, and even with this kind of second wave of diaspora, Hus's ideas spread to places like Croatia, Poland, Austria, Hungary, they really start to emanate outside of Bohemia, yeah. correct, yeah. Now, another escalation is the king of Hungary tried to step in, and um, so he was also the... the the reason he was kind of invested is that he was the heir to the Czech throne and Václav's brother, like Wenceslav's brother. So all parties agreed to the Council of Constance to smooth things over, okay? So, including Hus. So everybody was called to this uh, Specifically thing. Hus. I mean, th this right. This was a, uh, not to foreshadow or ruin the story, it was a setup, folks. <laughs> yeah. Right? They, well, they knew what they wanted to do with Hus, but they wanted to get him in to make him feel comfortable yeah. that he could be in safe quarters. Right. So, yeah. So he had the understanding of safe passage, like he had certain guarantees. Um, however, uh, he did write his will before he left. So, ah. yeah, he, yeah, he probably wasn't totally blindsided, right. maybe. But anyways, when he gets to Constance, he kept preaching, which was not good. And this was in direct, uh, like, disagreement with 
disagreement with the agreement. This was not allowed according to the agreement, right? So his, uh, his opponents use that as an excuse to imprison him because, you know, if he doesn't follow the agreement, neither do they. So, yeah. So he was thrown into a Dominican dungeon, and now the Pope started his inquiry. So he started first in, the first investigation, which was conducted by three bishops, and then they had their trial based on the investigation. And the Pope left. He was about to be forced to abdicate. So remember, this is the time of many, many popes. And Hus was chained up in the castle of the bishop, of the Bishop of Constance. And at this point, he was kind of really poorly fed. He, he got He was sick. hanging he to was, life. Yeah, yeah. It, it wasn't a good time for him. Um, he still hung tight. He did not, uh, you know, submit at all in, in any of his things. He didn't, he was not willing to recant. Um, what he did say is like, listen, if you can use the Bible to tell me that I'm wrong, you show me the verse where I, where I misstepped and I will recant. And that was his whole thing, is that everything I'm saying is based on the Bible. So nothing more, nothing more, nothing, nothing more, nothing less. Um, you know, forget about your Catholic dogma for a second. I'm not saying anything against the Bible. So here's the things that he was asked to confess, okay? Basically that he erred in the thesis, which he had hitherto maintained. So, uh, you know, that everything he said so far was wrong. That he renounced them for the future. So he, they wouldn't just let him free and then he could say them again. He had no. to be quiet. Yeah. Right. So he had to recant them, okay? And he also declared the opposite of these sentences. So not only did he say, I was wrong before, but in fact, the opposite is true, right? Um, so he asked to be exempted from recanting doctrines, which he had never taught, because apparently there were some false accusations there, and others which the assembly considered erroneous. So the assembly actually agreed with him sometimes. And he was still, he said, nope, there's, this is, you know, uh, unconditional surrender. You recant everything you've ever said. But even the assembly was like, well, you know, he did say this and this and this and that, you know, we believe the same thing. But nope, they didn't go with that. So he wasn't, he was not willing to revoke. And um, yeah, I mean, basically it would just go against his conscience, right? I mean, you know, to do otherwise, um, he just, you know, he couldn't do it. He couldn't have a clean conscience and, and recant everything he said. And obviously, you know, that kind of, that didn't go over so well. So, Travis, let me paint the picture here to give you an idea if we can actually go back in time and look at, at, at what was actually happening. Uh, Jan Hus was said to have fallen upon his knees and asked God in a very low voice to forgive all of his enemies in very Christ-like fashion, actually, right? Um, you know, but what would happen was is that this was a ceremony to take him away for his execution. So they dressed him up in his priestly robes and vestments. And then after they dressed him up in this, they one by one had taken different pieces of these vestments away. Uh, as, a Sarah, as, as you might see in a, in a military uh, court-martial where they rip off the, mm -hmm. the, the badges and the, and the mortar boards and all those kind of things off your uniform. Um, and then the, finally, the, the, the real kind of embarrassment to all this is that they put a paper hat on his head, a white paper hat, with the inscription of, of Harrison. It's, it said dunce? It, you would think, in my mind, that's kind of the pointy hat they would have. Yeah. And basically, it said, it said heretic, um, leader of a heretic movement. Hughes was then, then led away under uh, strong guard with armed, armed guards and uh, at, taken to the place of execution. At this point, he knelt down. He spread out his hands, much like a person would do when, when uh, they're in church. And he prayed aloud for many people to hear him. And the uh, words that were said were, Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on us. 
and uh, that kind of leads us into the actual act of um, putting him on the on the uh, the uh, pyre and yeah. setting him aflame. Yeah. So so then basically what happens is they undressed him, they tied his hands behind his back, and uh, they they tied up his neck with a big chain, like to the you know they basically chained him up to the stake, and they kind of started to pile the wood and the straw up, you know. I mean, you know where this is going. They it basically covered him all up, all the way up to his neck. And at the last moment, the uh, the imperial marshal, his name's von Poppenheim, and uh, also in the in the the count of Palatine. Um, so I asked him to recant one last time. Okay, you know they made him the offer that if you recant, well, you know you'll we'll basically we'll spare your life. And again, he declined, and he said. God is my witness that the things charged against me I never preached. In the same truth of the gospel which I have written, taught, and preached, drawing upon the sayings and positions of the holy doctors, I am ready to die with today. And then they lit him on fire. So he was burnt to, burnt to ashes, and then his ashes were thrown into the Rhine River. So now this is kind of an, an anecdote. Uh, I don't know if this is true or not, but, but there's a story that it's claimed that the executioners had some problem building up the fire. Like, you know, once they got started, it, it just wasn't, didn't scale. And an old woman came closer to the bonfire and threw a relatively small amount of, like, brushwood on it. And Hus, seeing that, he said, Sancta Simplicitas, holy simplicity. And uh, the sentence in Czech is Svata, prost svata Prostata, or in, like, Vakit, it would be Svata Prostoto. And it's still used to comment like it's a stupid action, like right. you simpleton, you know, right. something well, you so know, it lives I, on to this day. But, it, you know, it's an anecdote. It, Who knows? Right. And I, I think, you know, the victors kind of be able to tell the stories and the anecdotes and the fairy tales. Uh, to, this doesn't make him look very good that he doesn't really, you know, he's, he's not uh, going down uh, with, with his head held high. He's actually saying something towards the end. But one thing that, you know, when we talk about execution, to kind of put it into human perspective, when you're burned alive at the stake, what you're hope to go through is that you asphyxiate first. You suffocate from, quickly. From, yeah, yeah. the oxygen's taken from the air, um, or the the smoke inhalation will get, will at least knock you unconscious. Unfortunately, in the case of Joan of Arc, and unfortunately in the case of the tens of thousands of of people that were charged with witchcraft, and unfortunately in the case of Jan Hus, um, you know the, the burning it was most likely felt uh, because they they wanted yeah. to set a message that he was going to suffer. And so yeah. th th this is this these are these are hard times here, and I think that uh, this did resonate with the followers of Jan Hus, that you know the way he was killed uh, and executed by by the Holy Church was something that they his followers just could not forgive. They they couldn't be Christ-like in forgiving uh, their enemies. Yeah, well, he's the typical uh, religious martyr at this point. So let's take let's go fast forward uh, four more years uh, into. Um, uh, the what was left over after after the uh, the the execution of Jan Hus. Most of Bohemia, as we said, is already Protestant at this point, and along and along with a significant minority uh, of the surrounding areas. So you did have these little pockets of Catholicism, um, uh, little regions within Bohemia, Moravia, especially mm -hmm. uh, led maybe by a castle or by a royal by by a very wealthy family that might have held the the, the papal sort of. Uh, um, hard road, but there, everybody else was basically Protestant at this time. Mm -hmm. You can see that the tension was just was just really building at this yeah. point. Uh, a couple things to make things a little interesting about this time: uh, the early use of firearms, like hand cannons, were actually um, 
uh, being taught. So we're kind of moving away from the, the archaic just bows and arrows uh, and slingshot materials, but now to, to cannon fire and, and gunpowder yeah. fire. Um, we also get the case of defenestration. Travis, what is defenestration? To throw someone out of a window. Pretty much. That happens as a way of killing them. Ex ex exactly, a quick a quick way without trial. Yeah, <laughs> you're done, and just open a window and toss them out. Um, flails were the national weapon. What's a flail? Is it like a whip? It is a whip. It's basic, but it, it has like more than one end. Or it, something? It's, it's kind of a cat of nine tails. Yeah, you might have, you might have heard thinking. this in, in, in old uh, um, uh, naval tradition for you know someone committed a problem on a ship. It's got little knots in it, so it really tears your your skin apart yeah. for a whipping issue. Um, Vagerberg tactics. Uh, think of the Wild West wagon circles. When yeah. we, we talk about uh, those old movies in the American tradition, of uh, circle the wagons, folks, and then the, the Indians would, would encircle that, circle that's that. That's exactly what I thought of when this, I read this stuff. This is, yeah. These are battle wagons, man. This, this, yeah. is, this is actually a pretty cool tactic that was used centuries afterwards that relate to the, the Hussite Wars were battle wagons. If you ever mm -hmm. see these things... They're like um, medieval tanks, yeah, in totally. a lot of ways, with spikes yeah. and everything, and and and, and places to to and armament and um, um, those type of issues. So Hussites also got the reputation for not taking captives. These were hard-on, hard soldiers with an axe to grind, and you did not want to meet up with them. Uh, that would uh, you know give you an idea for pause when you went up against them in battle. So give you an idea what years we're talking about. Now we're talking about between the years of 1419 to 1434. Now we have Jan Jalifsky again. I say again because we mentioned him in the very first podcast when we talked about the underground, uh, because we talked about the torture chamber that he ended up in. So he's the very radical Hussite preacher that led a procession to the new town after one of his really, you know, fiery sermons. And he led his whole congregation to the new town hall, which is off of Karlovo uh, Miesti, right next to Hooters. And <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you could put that in there, but yes, it is actually about two, you know, two stores down from. Hooters. I wonder what Janjelewski, this yes. radical Protestant, would think of that. He wouldn't like it. I don't um, think so. But anyway, so they <laughs> they went into the the uh, new town. There's a kind of a tower. It's you know not a huge, but like like let's say four story, five story tower, and they chucked the mayor of Newtown and some of his lackeys out of the window. Okay, very Christian action, by the way. Now, but to be fair, they these uh, the mayor and the lackeys were throwing stones at the Hussites, so there was some provoca provocation there. But uh, anyways, um, they threw them outside, and then there were Hussites waiting on the on the floor with their kind of spikes, and uh, they they finished the job. So yeah, that's the first defenestration. Um, Wenceslav, the king, King Wenceslav, died two weeks later, and Wenceslav's widow Sophia of Bavaria promptly hired mercenaries to take control of Prague, which, yeah, the whole fiasco ended pretty messily. It sounded like a bad time for the king to pass away because it left somewhat of a power vacuum in the middle of this tension, Travis. I, I, I would imagine that, that Sophia yeah. probably wasn't up to the challenge. Yeah, it didn't end well. And, you know, Sophia of Bavaria, so she's German, and the, the thing is that a lot of Germans, a lot of Germans lived in Bohemia, and most of them were still Catholic. So... There, there was a split from, uh, you know, Czechs and Germans, and the Czechs were 90% uh, Hussites at this point, and the Germans almost zero. I mean, there weren't very many. So what the Hussites did was they expelled a lot of Germans from cities in Bohemia, kind of sent them into exile, or at least to the countryside. So 
you know, I don't want to get too deep into every single battle and every single like a blow by blow thing. We just don't have that much time. But there's there's some pretty kind of interesting points that happened. Um, for instance, the Pope sent crusades against Bohemia. So anytime you got you know a heretical thing or you know you got infidels to crush somewhere, it's called a crusade. So there were actually crusades sent against Bohemia by the Pope. And uh, there's there's a couple of branches of Husit, Hussitism that started to splinter over, you know, basically radical levels of, you know, who believes what and, and you know, how radical or how literally they take certain teachings. And the, the main two that we all talk about are Utraquists and Taborites. Now, Tabor soon became the center of the most militant Hussites, and they differed from the Utraquists by recognizing only two sacraments, baptism and communion. Okay, nothing else. By rejecting most of the ceremony of the Roman Catholic Church, and so the ecclesiastical organization of Tabor had a somewhat puritanical character. The government was established on a thoroughly, like just absolutely democratic basis. There were four captains known uh, as Heitmane, like kind of captains of the people. So they're elected, one of who, whom was Jishka, who's comes up over and over in these battles. And he was a very strict military discipline was instituted like throughout the town. Tabor is super fascinating. We're actually going to do its own, it's going to, I mean, it's so cool, it's going to get its own show. The town of Tabor is is a fortifi fortified city. Yeah. Um, and they... Named after Mount Tabor Exactly. In There's some yeah. bi biblical uh, reasons why they why they named it this way. And it was supposed to be uh, an island among, um, you know, all these other... Uh, uh, you know, people that didn't want it, the Hussites to survive. So, so they uh, really, you know, we'll we'll have to get into that for a destination yeah. podcast on on Bohemia. They had this kind of, they had like a commune. I mean, they just they they were totally experimentalists on how they run things and really cool things. So definitely stay tuned for that one. I, I wanted to say one thing about these crusades. So, if you live here, which we do, it's kind of cool learning about these battles because. Uh, when I was reading the list of these crusades, now it's, they're just like metro stops here in Prague. So it's just subway yeah, stops. That's right. So like Vyshedad, Radchani, which are the two castles, Pankratz, um, which Pankratz is also in The Good Soldier Schweik, which is a hilarious book written right after World War I. Uh, you know, anyways, I just wanted to kind of right. throw that in there. It's, it's, it's awesome. Yeah, we, when you when you look at the, the leader uh, that came out of all this, that would be Jan Zizka, um, he was a tough dude, and we, we you know, again, he's probably almost need a podcast just for this guy. Um, he is immortalized here in Prague um, for a variety of reasons, especially during the communist times. Uh, if you actually come to Prague, you'll see on top of this pretty prominent hill, uh, Vitkov Hill, in the, in the little uh, subsection uh, called Vitkov. Um, yeah. It's it's a kind of a, a, a blue collar class town. Well, and even yeah, it's, yeah, it's right next to yeah. Like Zhishkov is right next to where I live, more or less. Like I'm one city neighborhood away. Right, right? And, and Vitkov Hill was actually a site of a battle, and what what is on there now is a giant mausoleum, communist style block building, and and to Gottwald, like to, the first to the first communist yeah. uh, Czech president, and um and then in front of that is the largest equestrian um, statue. In all of Europe, if not the world, I think it's 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 absolutely huge, um, and it's it's been refurbished. It's it's pretty impressive. And on top of that is the one-eyed general, 
Jan Shishka. Yeah. Right. And uh, we could talk about. We'll talk about. You know how we got that one eye. How we lost both eyes actually when it was all said and done. Uh, but he was tough as nails. He ran these war wagons during the Hussite Wars. That uh, again, people in military colleges all the way up into the 19th century were studying these tactics. So yeah. it was something that that lasted for several hundred years. Uh, Travis, we talked about the town of Tabor. Um, yeah. All right. All right. Give a, give us one good fact about Tabor. Uh, one good fact. Um, there. The, one good fact, uh, they would have a, a short, uh, it had sort of a hippie uh, feel to it all. Yeah. Right? So yeah. I th think, think, of, think of the 1960s in the United States, and you had these communes, these farming communes. They had their kind of, you know, it was considered cult-like status, and people kind of just gravitated to them. Dude, I'm from Oregon. Right? I, so I know you know what I'm talking about. I know about. what a commune is. Right? <laughs> so, so it had their kind of their own rules and, and egalitarian sort of, sort of feel to it. I want you to think of Tabor like that. But wrap it around with giant defensive walls and embattlements, so so that they can uh, keep everybody away. Um, originally, um, Adam Adamites uh, were from the second or fourth century early Christians from North Africa. Uh, they emulated uh, they emulated life before sin, and that's kind of what the Taborites kind of wanted to to gravitate gravitate towards. Um, they all rejected marriage, saying that without sin, it wouldn't be needed. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? Yeah. Um, they worshipped in in the <laughs> in the buff and rejected sin. I would think if I came up to some of that, I would probably think these were pagans, not so much Christian, a Christian yeah. movement at the time, yeah. right? Um, since there was no good or no evil uh, before Eve ate the forbidden fruit, Hussites quickly put the kibosh to all of it. Yeah. All right. So it just yeah. didn't exist yeah, for I, them. Yeah. I read the term neo-Adamites. I don't know if they called themselves that or if they if they even used a term at all. But you know, the Adamites were, like you said, from the second to fourth century, and, and I never heard about. This so is the first time I heard. Yeah. About apparently, it. so there was some organization before that ran around in the buff and reje rejected marriage, and yeah, I don't know. It's uh, interesting. You know, at times the Hussites were helped out by uh, Polish and Lithuanians, which kind of mm -hmm. surprises me because you're talking this is kind of the heart of Catholic sort of of belief systems when it comes to you know regionalities in Europe, and uh, they they came to help out the Hussites. Uh, at one point, Hussites even offered the crown of Bohemia to the Polish king, yeah. who was then his uh, the cousin. Yeah. Right. So there was a blood connection, but uh, that was pretty uh, you know forward thinking to say, hey, we're going to offer it to you. By the way, if you come help us out, right? Yeah. Right, so so there were some four crusades or so. Each time the Hussites repelled them, again because they had a good leadership, they had great tactics, and those crazy war wagons. Uh, unfortunately, Hussites fought each other um, within their own camps as much as the enemy that they defeated, uh, and that goes to back what you were talking about—the Ultraquists and the Taborites. They really yeah. didn't get along. It, it seems like they would get along for just long enough to defeat somebody, kick them out, and then they would start fighting each other. So. Just you know. like any movement, if you don't have a, a, a strong sort of your own dogma, basically, uh, this confederation is probably not going to last long because you're going to have people going different directions. One yeah. had a, really a military sort of aspect uh, that the other did not want to follow. For the most part, they're on the defensive, but I'll point out that a couple of times they invaded Germany to kind of take the fight outside of Bohemia. Um, but eventually, the war did end, and there was a peace agreement that kind of you know, was discussed and, and eventually went like this. So, the Holy Sacrament is to be given freely in both kinds to all Christians in Bohemia and Moravia and to those elsewhere who adhere to the faith of these two countries. So, Hussitism kind of made it mainstream, so they, they allowed it. All mortal sins shall be punished and ex extirpated by those, who, by those whose office it is to do so. 
The word of God is to be freely and truthfully preached by the priests of the Lord and by worthy deacons. And fourth, the priests in the time of the law of grace shall claim no ownership of worldly possessions. So they kind of came to a theological understanding that, uh, okay, so Christians are Christians, um, but we need to agree on these points. Yeah, the priests are going to take that vow of poverty very seriously at this point. Yeah. Um, now, it's hard to overstate the legacy. It seems like we see that in every, we say that in every podcast, don't uh, we, we? We do, because it, it gets really deep, especially here in Prague and in the Czech Republic. You know, and this, this is heavy stuff. Uh, you know, Travis, when you drive down the streets here or you walk down the streets to the metro station, you're right. You come up to something that re relates to the Hussite Wars. What bothered me about the whole thing, being a guy that just loves history here, is the fact that there was so much lost to history because of this back and forth between the Catholic forces and the Catholic League and, and uh, Hussite forces. Um, you know, one would, would ransack and take stuff and just actually destroy, you know, works of art and, and uh, um, places of worship that you would love to still see today. And so many of the things that you see today on a tour of Prague, you say, well, yeah, the foundation goes back to, you know, maybe the, the oh, yeah. 12th or 13th sure. century, but it's been rebuilt twice because of the Hussite Wars. That's pretty much, a, you can stick that statement pretty much to the end of almost every sentence to every sort of landmark that you see in Prague because it was just, you know, just ransacked, burned, destroyed on purpose. Anything that represented Catholicism, burned, People, monks, you know, put to the death, uh, Graves deconsecrated, you name it, um, and you know, gold and other things melted down and, and distributed or just taken away. Uh, and then you have the same thing going back the other direction. You know, depending upon you know if the Catholics had had control of, of that time to, against the Protestants or against the Hussites. So it was in a very ugly time here, and uh, you do see you know parts of, of of those scars today here in Prague. Yeah, um, I know we we talked about again. It's also hard to overstate. The, the kind of impact on Protestantism in general. Uh, so, I mean, he's obviously a you know, key contributor, uh, but it, you know, so his teachings kind of spread from there. So his teaching had a strong influence on the states of Europe, Martin Luther, obviously. The Hussite Wars resulted in the Basel Compacts, which allowed for a reformed church in the Kingdom of Bohemia. Um, so this was almost a century before anything similar would happen during the Lutheran Reformation. So that's, you know, it's pretty interesting to note. The Unitas Fratrum, also known as the Moravian Church, still considers itself a spiritual heir to many of Hus's followers. And Hus's, you know, extensive writings on, you know, theolog theology and all that kind of thing, it still earns him a prominent place in Czech literary history. And he's responsible, now this is interesting, so kind of like the, Gim, the Grimm brothers put down some of the things in the German language, so Hus is responsible for introducing the use of diacritics, especially the Hatchek. Every time you see an angry, alpha, an angry letter I, I'm frustrated Czech. every time I hear that because I can't speak it. it yeah. It's one of the well, hardest things for an English like native Poles, speaker to Poles speak. Poles have the same sounds, but they yeah. don't have, they, they say CZ instead of CH, instead of C with a Hatchek, and we say CH. So the, you know, this is like the diacritics that you know he, like, who's basically invented them. They say, um, so because he wanted each Czech sound consonant to be a single syllable, not like in German or English or Polish. You know, he wanted you know one sound to have one alpha, like one letter. So you know, he, yeah, he's responsible for that. 
the Jan Hus Memorial can be seen at the Prague Old Town Square, which is th the dominant thing in the Old Town Square. Uh, you know, that huge statue figure thing, that's all, that's Hussitism. But in New York, a church in Brooklyn, which is at uh, 153 Ocean Avenue, if you're interested, and like church and a theater in Manhattan, lo located in 351 East and 74th Street, are named for Hus. And there's also the John Hus Moravian Church, the John Hus Presbyterian Church, the John Hus Playhouse. Even in America, you can come across a Hussite memorial here or there. Uh, closer here to Prague, if you drive uh, about 45 minutes south of here, heading towards the Shimova Forest areas of southern Bohemia, uh, you will see the areas where uh, Jan Hus is immortalized by statues, and 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 uh, the Hussite wars are actually um, were fought all across the, what is now Czech Republic. But one of the, one of the very interesting places was the castle, the castle ruins of, of Rabi, uh, which is in southern Bohemia, and it's massive. It's actually the biggest uh, ruin of of all of Central Europe, uh, as far as the castle is concerned, and it was laid siege to by Jan Žižka. Uh, we talked about that famous Hussite general that uh, you know lost an eye at this particular battle. Uh, he lost the other eye, I believe, at the Battle of Kost uh, on the other side near Mlada Boleslav, uh, heading heading uh, east, actually, in, in the Czech Republic. Um, and he is the other face to this Hus Hussite movement, unfortunately. Uh, and I say unfortunately because I don't think Jan Hus would have approved bringing up the sword so much as Jan Žižka was so apt to do. Um, yeah. But these were the times, and uh, many people died because of this. Uh, we will definitely have another podcast on Jan Zizka. I think uh, his story is very, very interesting, and and why he's immortalized so much today in Prague. Uh, he's he's a difficult character to hold close to, but Jan Hus is not. I think people can hold up Jan Hus as as another example of of, of Calvin or uh, of, of of Martin Luther. Well, that's all we have for tonight on this episode of Jan Hus and the Husite movement. We will be back uh, another couple weeks with another Bohemican podcast. Yep. Thanks for listening. Take care. You have been listening to the Bohemican podcast with Pete Coleman and Travis Doe. Visit bohemican.com for more information on this episode, other episodes, and much more information about history, traditions, and culture in the Czech Republic. Find us on iTunes, subscribe, and review, and don't forget to rate us. We would love to hear from you. Send comments, ideas and corrections on our comments page on bohemican.com or get in touch via Facebook or Twitter. Tune in to our sister podcast, History of Alchemy, which is also on iTunes or on historyofalchemy.com. Until next time on the Bohemican Podcast, thank you for listening.